In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hey, everybody. This is Doug Robertson of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution with another edition of the Southern Fried Soccer Podcast. It is September 19th, and yesterday... Atlanta United defeated D.C. United 3-2 in a very important game in the MLS Eastern Conference. The goals were scored by Ezekiel Barco with a fantastically finished free kick in the 18th minute. Joseph Martinez tallied his ninth of the season in the 64th minute with an assist from Ezekiel Barco, who we're going to talk about a lot on this podcast. Felipe for DC United hit a just a, a amazing volley to make the score 2-1 in the 75th minute. Then George Bello had a tap in in the 87th minute after Marcelino Moreno dribbled past five DC United defenders uh, in just a brilliant display of technique and imagination. And then DC United tacked one on in the fourth minute of stoppage time uh, from Edison Flores again. Another amazing volley. So you had four of the five goals were truly fantastic um, in this game. But what was important about this game, if you are an Atlanta United supporter, is that the team is now in fifth place in the MLS East. It trails third place and fourth place New York City and Orlando by two points. It leads D.C. United and Montreal by two points, and eighth place Miami and Philadelphia by four points, and tenth place Columbus by five. I'm not counting Columbus out of the playoff picture yet. And, of course, Atlanta United is going to beautiful Philadelphia and Chester, Pennsylvania next Saturday to play Philadelphia. It's a place that Atlanta United has typically struggled. Um, Philadelphia has also had the team's number this season. It, of course, knocked Atlanta United out of the Champions League and then uh, got a draw, I think, in their next meeting. Um, But Philadelphia is really struggling right now. Atlanta United has won, uh, what is it, seven of its past eight or eight of its past nine. I forgot what the number is now. Um, But they are playing exceptionally well, and a lot of that is due to Ezekiel Barco, who has now played a part in 11 of the team's past 17 goals, which is astounding. Uh, He said the only perfect player is Lionel Messi, but it's hard to uh, argue with what he's doing right now. Um, Yeah, it's the seventh in its past eight games that it's won. And in the past 10 days, I think I wrote nine days in the story, or eight days in the story, past nine days, the team took all nine points and scored 10 goals in its three home games. So that's very, very important for Atlanta United and its momentum 
And to be honest, it really makes you wonder what in the world was going on under Gabriel Heinze, uh, because this is a totally, totally different team under interim manager Rob Valentino and now Gonzalo Pineda, <clears throat> who continues to be a fantastic post-game interview. If you haven't read my follow-up that I posted earlier today, you can find it on Twitter at Doug Robertson AJC on our Facebook at Atlanta United News Now. I hope you'll read the description of the shoes that Ezekiel Barco was wearing to the post-game press conference because you have to be someone who is full of confidence, in my opinion, to wear the shoes he was wearing. I couldn't do it. Uh, they were kind of white with like sparkles or bling just all over them. Um, I don't know how he's wearing them in the rain. Uh, I wrote that they look, they should to, should be insured, but I kind of use that as a window into the confidence that Barco is playing with on the field right now. So I hope you'll give that a, a listen and also, or a read, I should say. And also uh, the team was asked by, uh, I think Felipe and Joe, uh, if it believes it can win the MLS cup and, you know, I don't know what the answer would have been earlier this season. I think they would have talked about we have a belief we can do anything, but now they're more concrete. We believe we can, you know, compete for titles. Um, <clears throat> so that, that's a pretty significant difference in the mindset. And, you know, wins change everything. And right now Atlanta United is winning big. Um, so you all sent me some fantastic questions, and I'm going to get into those right now. I'm sitting here on my couch with my beautiful wife, Annette, to the right of me, the dog's in front of me, and i got to go to a funeral later today. Um, so this is taping, and we'll post it a little bit earlier than usual. So, again, you can find me on Twitter at Doug Robertson AJC and on Facebook at Atlanta United News Now. And before I get to your questions, I'm going to take a quick sip of my coffee. Get yourself a cup of coffee if you're out there, folks. All right. T says, I have seen Gonzalo Pineda start some traditions with the club. Birthday cakes on the training ground, appreciation laps around the field for home games, and now allowing supporters to attend training sessions. That's going to be Tuesday. It's a select group of uh, season ticket holders. So if you didn't get an invite to this one, I got to assume that Pineda is going to keep doing this every so often, and you will uh, eventually get an invitation. Uh, that's not a promise. That's just a belief on my part. Um, I think all of this is great as it builds camaraderie and brings the fans closer to the team. Have you noticed any other new things that the team does since Pineda's arrival? Well, it scores a lot and it wins, if that counts. Um, if not, what are some of your favorite traditions that you have seen from other teams around the world? Now, I haven't really seen anything else new from Pineda. The training sessions are shorter. They're more focused. Um, that's really all I noticed. That The players did get up on the capo stand after the game last night, but that was because the game was dedicated to um, MLS's efforts uh, to cure childhood cancer. And so they got up on the stand as part of that celebration, but I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so some of my uh, other favorite traditions – I'm a Liverpool fan, so, you know, you'll never walk alone is always a, a hugely cool moment for me before games. I love uh, West Ham's forever blowing bubbles. Um, that, to me, is is fantastic. 
in Germany, Borussia Dortmund does some really cool things before and during games. Their TIFOs are probably the best in the world. Uh, and that's saying something because there's I don't know how many clubs in the world. So that's pretty cool. Um, in Portland, I, I love their supporters march. Um, I know a lot of clubs do that, but Portland's is, I think, just really cool because of the energy in it. Um, so that's fun. Uh, South America, I'm just starting to watch more South American soccer, so I can't really give you an opinion on what happens down there. But obviously the energy and passion is, is I don't want to say unrivaled, but it's among the best of club supporters in the world. And I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more about South American soccer. Um, and then T goes on, uh, Darren Eels wanted to start a tradition where the managers shared a beer in a room at Mercedes-Benz Stadium after each home game. Do you know if that ever took off? You know, T, I'll be honest with you. I think about that every time we walk back and forth past the locker room on the way to the interview room because in our tours of the stadium – Darren was so giddy about trying to get that going. But I don't think at the time he realized that MLS teams, most of them don't fly charter. They are getting on a bus and they are getting to the airport as soon as possible. So there's just not the time for that to happen. Um, And travel in Major League Soccer is much different than in England. It takes longer to get anywhere. Um, and so I don't think it ever took off. I don't think it's ever happened. If it has, I haven't seen it. Um, there's also all the post-game stuff that you got to do. And then the coaches want to get home to their families or get home and watch films. So I don't think it ever took off. But, Darren, if you're listening to this or someone at Atlanta United, if you're listening to this and you know for a fact that it has happened, please just tag a tweet and let me know because it would be cool. All right. Now on to our second questioner, Coffee Sip. All right. Uh, David says, really enjoying the podcast. Well, thanks, David. Uh, Do you think Atlanta United is benefiting from the rigorous practice regimen set up by Heinzo? I'm not a fan of him or his draconian measures, but many players seem to be in better shape than prior seasons. I've thought about this one, too, David, and my nebulous answer is I don't know. I know that the team suffered some. Oh, I don't know but I suspect that the team suffered some injuries, Emerson Hyman as an example, uh, because of Heinz's practice regimen. I know that the players were just absolutely worn down mentally and physically, which contributed, I think, to their poor results at the beginning of the season. So now, I mean, things may seem easier than they were under Heinz, so I guess he gets some credit for that. But in terms of tactics for a long MLS campaign, it wasn't very smart, but a lot of the things that Heinze did weren't very smart. Uh, he goes on. Also, now that Heinze is gone, do you think we will see Franco Escobar return? He was certainly an entertaining player on the field. No, you will not see Franco Escobar return, in my opinion. Atlanta United is loaded with center backs. Um Unless the team sells Miles Robinson and maybe someone makes a run at George Campbell, 
I don't see Franco Escobar coming back. There's simply no place to play him. Um, this team still has Efren Morales as a homegrown, who's also a center back, but he's still learning the position coming up. Still got Anton Walk, still got Alex DeJohn, still got Alan Franco. If you wanted to possibly bring him back as a right back, if you were to let go of Ronald Hernandez's loan at the end of the season, maybe, but Brooks London is still there. So I just don't see Escobar coming back. Coffee sip. Ben says, did Jake Mulraney lose his starting spot? That was a joke. Ha! <laughs> that was a good one, Ben. Uh, Joseph is rounding into form. What percentage do you put him at? Is Joseph 90% back to 2019 Joseph form? Yeah, I don't it, that that's it's a good question. Um I don't really know how to put a percentage on it. You can only know it from the eye test and he looks like he's getting closer. He's winning more headers in the box now and on free kicks, which is a sign that he trusts his knee and can jump well. Um The only um, issue, he, he doesn't seem to have kind of the sprinter speed that he had before, but he's still pretty quick. And, of course, he, his knee, uh, he felt something in his knee last night. And trainers were looking at him. We don't have an update yet uh, on anything. After the game, Gonzalo Pineda said he thought that Joseph was going to be okay and that it may have just been uh, just an, an issue um, just that comes with having a, a you know a lot of uh, fatigue with playing three games in the past uh, eight or nine days, playing on turf, uh, the stiffness that comes with sitting on airplanes like Joseph did with Venezuela, going to South America to play for Venezuela and coming back, uh, just a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm hoping that the team will let us know what the trainers found after the game last night. Ben continues. Uh, Brad Guzan, who is, uh, I think, my wife's favorite player, uh, made some good saves, even though Reddit keeps trying to tell me that he is washed up. Is Guzan still a top five MLS keeper? Um, yeah, I think he, he would compete to be a top five keeper in that group. His distribution in the past few games has not been as good as it once was. Some of that is teams are pressing a little bit more uh, and pressing higher up the field, so it makes it harder to complete those long passes. Um, but he's also had a couple of bad giveaways, but he's made up for it with <clears throat> many, many fantastic saves. The team has, I think, seven shutouts this season. Uh, they probably should have had one yesterday, but... Again, those two fantastic goals by D.C. United. No goalkeeper uh, was going to stop those. Um, but Atlanta United really put the clamps on D.C.'s offense. Just um, some quick numbers. Eight chances created for D.C. United. Julian Gressel only created one. Ola uh, Kamara, who came into the game as the golden boot leader with 16, only had one shot, and it wasn't on target. They were both credited with an assist on Edison Flores' goal, but I mean, an assist and assist, but it didn't really matter a whole lot um, because the game was done. So, yes, I think that uh, Guzan should still be considered a top five 
keeper in Major League Soccer. Some of the other keepers, uh, for those who uh, don't pay a lot of attention to MLS and focus mostly on Atlanta United, if you look at the stats for um, shutouts, uh, Nashville and Colorado, which is Joe Willis and Yarborough, lead uh, in that area. And then Guzan is in third. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Guzan's not in third. He got passed last night. Uh, Miller from Minnesota uh, has eight. And Carlos Coronel, uh, or Cornell, I'm sorry, for Red Bulls uh, has seven, which Guzan is tied with. Um, I, I would put, you know, Guzan above all of those guys. Some of the better goalkeepers in Major League Soccer, in my opinion. Andre Blake, of course. Um, Matt Turner, uh, of course, has to be put up there. Um, as some of the better keepers. Fry in Seattle, uh, another uh, fantastic keeper. Uh, so th- those are some of the ones that I guess you could say Guzan is competing with to be the top goalkeeper in Major League Soccer. Nick says, as Kanye said in July, the vibes are immaculate. I'm going to have to take your word for that, Nick. Uh, today was super fun at the Benz. Anyways, you got to love when someone says anyways. When you put an S on the end of a word that doesn't get an S. It's like my cousins in Alabama used to call Piggly Wiggly the Piggly Wigglies or we're going to the Walmarts. So now I do that just because I think it sounds fun. Anyway, to you, who is the third best team in the East? New England is in a class of its own, and I'm super high on Nashville, but NYCFC haven't run away from anyone else, and we've beaten Orlando, Montreal, and D.C. twice. So why not Atlanta? Well, that is a good question. Uh, Let's look at the standings here. Yes, New England is definitely in a class of its own. Nashville uh, was beaten by Toronto, of all teams, last night. I I really like Nashville. I've liked them a lot since uh, middle of last year. I like what Gary Smith is doing. So then you get the group of NYCFC, Orlando, Atlanta, D.C. Right now, based on my current forum, I would say Atlanta is the third best team in the East. Orlando has fallen on hard times, and as I discussed in Wednesday or Thursday morning's podcast, this should not be a surprise. Orlando typically, in its franchise history, wilts in the second half of the season. Oscar Pereja, when he was coach of of Dallas, those teams wilted in the second half of the seasons. Some of that has to do with just the weather and playing in that weather uh, consistently. It's difficult in Dallas and Orlando. and some of it might just be teams catch up with the tactics, and there's not a counter. But we shall see. So, yes, I would say right now Atlanta United is the third best team in the East. You could argue they're the second best team in the East. But uh, Nashville, Nashville is a very, very good team. Who I think can compete for the MLS Cup because their defense is, stro- is so strong. And then Nick finishes with thanks, as always. Love your work. Well, thanks. Coffee sip. Charles asks, and I like this question. This is a fun question. 
after Joseph hangs up his boots, hopefully many years in the future, do you think he would be a good studio analyst? Consider his English has vastly improved. A couple of seasons ago, he did a barbershop-style segment, and it was hilarious. Although incredibly intense off the pitch, he has a mischievous streak off the pitch. He has a big personality. Thank you for all your work in the AJC and this podcast. Joseph is a very, very intelligent person. He speaks, uh, how many languages does he speak? Spanish, English, Portuguese, uh, Italian, and maybe some German. I might be forgetting one. Um, so I think he'll be a fantastic studio analyst because he could talk to anybody. But it would probably be more uh, for European soccer than anywhere else. Now, whether he would want to do that, I have no idea. He he handles his media responsibilities better than he did his first couple of years in the league when he just didn't really like to do it and we didn't get to talk to him too often. Now he he comes and and he's he's been fun to interact with, but he's more fun to interact with now. Uh, he tries. He gives good answers. He he tries to be insightful. He's he tries to be honest as honest as he can. Uh, depending upon the question and the context. Um, and that's really, for me, that's what I want to see from analysts is just give me honesty. If the team is stinking, say the team is stinking and say that why it's stinking. If it's playing well, tell me it's playing well, but tell me why. Don't give me cliches. Don't give me all the other stuff that every other studio analyst throws out. Uh, that's what separates the really good from the just average. Uh, and I think Joseph could be really good because he would be honest and he would try to explain things. Um, and that goes for the color people in all sports uh, as well. Adam says, can we all just pause and appreciate the skills of Arahujo for a moment? Just wow. Felt sorry for both him and Joseph that Martinez couldn't bag goal 100 there at the end. Yeah, he's a, I was, Telling folks last night here at the house, he's just a different level of skill in Major League Soccer than most anyone in the league right now, uh, even Carlos Vela, in my opinion. He can get the ball and in a half second beat two guys, just be gone with the ball. It's amazing to watch. He's not looking for fouls. He plays. His work contributed to Atlanta United's second goal last night because D.C. United came out of the halftime hot with pressing Atlanta United. Atlanta United couldn't get out of its own half of the field. Pineda brought Arajujo on because he said he wanted to get two sprinters on the right and really try to attack that side of D.C. United's defense. Arajujo got the ball, split two D.C. United defenders like it was nothing, went down the field, resulted in a goal kick, from that goal kick, D.C. United turned over the ball. Barco jumped on it, passed it to Joseph. Goal, lead. That was all because – it wasn't all because of Rajo, but without that first play, the rest of it doesn't happen. So, yeah, he's a, he's a different cat. Um, Adam's first question. Tonight I had difficulty reading when Atlanta was trying to go over the top. Sometimes they played long. Other times it looked to be there, but the attempt wasn't made. What triggers – when Atlanta United players are looking to play long, or is it simply the runner catching the eye of the passer? It's a combination. 
Pineda likes to do moves and counter moves. So a lot of times you'll see two guys on the same side. You'll see one of them drift forward to try to drag that defense forward, and then the other will sprint down the field. Um, and then it's up to the player with the ball to make that pass. And so it really just comes down to does he see it? Does he feel confident hitting that pass? Is there enough space to hit that ball into so the Atlanta United player can run onto it? That's kind of the, the triggers. God bless Guzan for his two big saves tonight, but why is it so hard for him to, to distribute the ball cleanly? Uh, does MLS keep track of giveaways? No, MLS doesn't keep track of that. Um, and the stats we get at the end, we don't get passes by the goalkeepers, so it's difficult to tell. The only way I could do it, if you'll be patient with me for a second, the only way I can attempt to do it is go on to the MLS website and let's see if they put the passing stats down or a passing map, if I can get that, for uh, the goalkeepers. So give me one second here. And I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm looking. Yes, Guzan completed 76.1% of his passes, uh, of his 35 passes last night. So that's probably, I don't know what's expected of goalkeepers uh, for that uh, stat. But he, it looked to me like the, the past few games, it looks like his distribution hasn't been as clean as it typically is. I'm sure he knows that. I'm sure he'll work on it. So there you go. Coffee sip. Eric asks, I'm curious about your match day routine. How early do you arrive? How do you prep? How late do you stay? Do you submit all of your work before heading home? Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll share this with you. So typically, the press box opens two hours before the broadcast start of the game. So yesterday was 3.30 broadcast, so the press box opens at 1.30, so I try to get there at 1.30. Typically, before I leave my house here in Carrollton and make the hour drive to the stadium, I try to get all my files put together. So that will be a game story, the podcast file, the what was said file, a sidebar file, a follow file, and there's one I'm forgetting. And I go ahead and put what I call the boilerplate, which is the thing about for more content about it laying out and the schedule with links to all the past game stories at the bottom of each file. I go ahead and put the podcast link in there, even though uh, sometimes it's last it's the last podcast. Sometimes it refreshes on its own. Um, I do that. I read through the game notes that morning. I look around on the old inter, interwebs for information about at laying out his opponent because there's a lot of fantastic beat reporters and blogs out there that uh, are insightful. So I try to look at those to get prepared to get some idea of what we might see uh, during the game. So then as soon as the final whistle blows, I file my first game story. Then we go down and interview a manager and two players. We used to be able to go in the locker room and interview pretty much whoever we wanted to, but because of COVID, we don't do that anymore. Then we go back up to the press box. I'll put in the quotes and more context that we got from the interviews into the game story. I'll update that. I'll send out a new link to that, and then I'll send that link to our producers and editors at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and they'll edit it, and if it made 
the deadline for print, uh, it'll go into the paper. Um, and then typically, like last night, I went ahead and wrote a short <clears throat> on Joseph Martinez because a lot of y'all were asking about his status. Um, but then I'll go home and I'll write the follows, uh, either one or two of them. And then the next day, I'll do either the follow I didn't do and the podcast. <clears throat> and so that's kind of how my routine works. So by the end of one game, I'll probably file, I don't know, 100 to 120 inches of copy and the podcast. So it's, it's a fun day's work. Um, and thank you for asking, Eric. Doug, not me, a different Doug, and we're all cool, says Anton has been a rock all year, but he had several bad giveaways versus DC. Uh, was that tired legs or something else? It may have been tired legs. Um, he completed 83.3% of his passes, which was that's a decent percentage for a center back. A lot of it last night was DC's press. Um, when the center backs got the ball, DC pressed hard, tried to take away the passing angles. And so that makes it hard. Um, so I think that's what you were seeing last night uh, from not just Anton, but all of Atlanta United center backs. They, they were having some issues, but that's kind of what DC attempts to make you do. Noah says, good win. Our defense continues to be, in my opinion, lazy in big moments. How does this team stop giving up important goals within the 20-minute mark of the game ending? Should not have been a 3-2 game, in my opinion, but a 3-0 game. I don't think there's a defense out there that was stopping either of those D.C. United goals, as I said before. I, I wouldn't characterize those moments as the defense being lazy. Um, those were just the other teams trying to score, too, and those were fantastic goals. If you haven't got a chance to watch them, please do. And just uh, take a second to appreciate the skill because both were fantastic. Rick asks, when will five subs end? They hack and hack, get yellows, then sub the yellows off in the second half. Little repercussions to big fouls. Uh, I don't know if this will ever go away, to be honest with you. I, th I think it's probably here to stay. Um, some coaches don't use them. Gabriel Hines would not use the five subs, which never made any sense to me. Pineda does uh, because he really believes in you know, rest and recovery and, and getting everyone into the game uh, as much as he can. So I don't think five subs is going away. I think the managers like it too much. And then our final question, and this is a, a, a interesting one. Well, I think it's our final question. Let me make sure no one has emailed any questions. Yes, we have two more, two more questions. So let's go to that because I want to save this question for last. Travis says, is all the fan base outreach coming from the head coach or the front office itself recognizing the fan base had enough and was on the verge of revolt. I think it's a combination. Um, I think it was probably a big part of the interview process with Pineda about the need to connect with the fan base because it's not something that Frank uh, did a lot of, but I don't know if he was asked to do a lot of it. Um, Heinz, I don't know if Heinz even cared. Um, so I think it's a combination of the front office saying, hey, Pineda, this is important to us. Can it be important to you? And him saying, yes, let's make it happen. Um, and between the welcome videos and behind-the-scenes videos, the celebration with the supporter section and now the practice being open to the supporter group, 
I can't decide if it's coming from the head coach and they just absolutely nailed the hire or is the front office trying to repair all they got broken. Again, I think it's a combination of the front office and the head coach trying to work together to repair uh, what was becoming a damaged, uh, slightly damaged relationship and to strengthen the brand. So that's a good question, Travis. Thank you. And then Christian says, thank you so much for your stellar coverage of Atlanta United. Well, thanks, Christian. You are the best of the best. Well, thanks. I hope you're also, though, reading all the other uh, guys and girls who produce content, uh, both in English and Spanish, uh, of the team, because they all do a fantastic job also. Uh, here are my questions. Are there any metrics that tell us that the team's play under Pineda and Valentino is truly improved, or have we been a bit lucky with the results? No, I, I don't think the team has been lucky. Um, I think the team has been playing really, really well. The metrics are goal scored, chances created, wins. I mean, the goals that Atlanta United are scoring. So two of the three last night, you could argue, probably wouldn't happen again. The Barco to Joseph one would happen again. Um, but it's soccer, and that happens. The goals in the previous games, those were all just really except for Rajujo's first goal on Wednesday, really good team goals. Um, and that's the sign of a team that is playing well and a team that's playing with confidence. So, yes, I think the team is playing much better under Valentino and Pineda. They've simply been allowed to attack and to do what they were put together to do, which is to attack, to play exciting soccer, not to go sideways, Um not to just sit on the ball, which is what they were doing under Heinze. And so thanks, Christian. And now to our final question. And it, it's a little bit like a question that uh, was asked on Wednesday, um, but it's from Jason, who says, with the way the team is playing, and given the depressed selling market in Europe, what are your thoughts on keeping Barco for 2022 and not bringing Almeida? Of course, keeping in mind how the club likes fulfilling dreams of players going to Europe. So there are many, many factors that would go into that decision. Um, first, the team's still got to sign Almeida, and uh, that's not done. It's still ongoing, those negotiations. Then you'd have to figure out, can you fit Almeida in as a under-22 DP? The rules say that you can, because the under-22 DPs, the only thing that counts is the player's salary. So if he's willing to take the maximum budget charge, which is 600-something thousand, <clears throat> then no matter the transfer fee, no matter the agent fees, he could slide in as an under-22, and they could keep, they could have he and Barco on the field at the same time. But i got to think Almeida is going to want DP-type money. Because uh, he's made clear he would rather go to Europe than Major League Soccer. So you've got to incentivize that with salary. But that also makes me wonder, well, why do you want him? If he's already said he wants to go there rather than here, that just seems to be opening a can of worms that I wouldn't want to deal with. And then, of course, the last question is, we don't know when Barco's contract ends. I think, just based upon it laying out its history, his contract is probably up after the 2022 season. So if it 
the, there may be options, mutual options there, because Atlanta United does that a lot too. So if Atlanta United doesn't sell him in January or next summer, Barco walks for free if if the contract information is what I think it is. Because um, that that would be 18, 19, 20, 20, 22. That would be a five-year deal. So that's typical, uh, particularly when you're signing young DPs. Um, so I think Atlanta United is going to sell him. But again, to sell, you have to have a buyer. And you have to have a buyer that's willing to pay something close to Atlanta United's valuation. And Darren Eels had said they're not going to sell just to sell. They want to sell to put the player in a good position because they don't, they don't want to sell somebody uh, who isn't going to play. That It doesn't make a lot of sense, even if the money's good. It doesn't make Atlanta United look good. It doesn't make Major League Soccer look good. And then after us, I'll have to also agree on the sell-on fee. And that would be important, I think, with a player like Barco, who even when he goes to his next team, is still going to be young enough that he could earn another big money deal uh, in his next contract or, or his next transfer, I should say. So that that's important too. So we'll see. Um, it is a depressed selling market in Europe, which is going to impact what they can sell Barco for. I'm going to look at transfer market uh, real quick and look up Barco and see how they value him right now. They only value him at 11 million. And of course, Atlanta United paid like 13 and a half million, I think, for him. I don't know how often these are updated. I would think that Atlanta United is going to want to get him sold for around 20 million. So th those are the, the challenges. All right, I'm going to wrap up uh, the podcast. I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank you for sending your excellent questions. This is a little bit longer than usual. It's because you all are sending so many fantastic questions. Please consider following me on Twitter at Doug Robertson AJC and on Facebook at Atlanta United News Now. You can follow me on Instagram at Douglas David Robertson. Please consider subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Please uh, click on the links to the stories and give them a read, share them. A lot of our coverage, you know, it depends on, well, it not depends, but a factor within what we choose to cover is if the readers are reading it. Uh, we are a business, after all. So need you to click on those links, read those stories, share them so other people can click on them and read them. And give everybody else who covers Atlanta United, uh, please, a follow and read their content. Uh, Rob and Joe and Sydney and and Sam and Felipe and and Jason and John, uh, the guys at Siempre United, uh, the people who cover the team for our uh, Latin American, South American, and Spanish followers of the team. Give them a follow, too, because they all do really good work. And this is another edition of the Southern Fried Soccer Podcast, 
Atlanta United 3-2 winners over D.C. United. Atlanta United will play at Philadelphia next Saturday. Y'all take care. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.